One of my early business ventures was a team building enterprise. Uh, there was a group of us who had cut our teeth in Christian camping, and we realized that we could leverage all those skills to make actual real money. Uh, so we formed a business to help build stronger teams for companies and schools. And there was, we didn't know simple trust falls for us. We took these groups of executives and educators out on very adventurous rock climbing and canoeing trips. We specifically looked for rivers that were quite challenging. We, uh, we loved blind rappels. We would take them through blind rappels, very difficult rock climbs where it requires uh, big leaps of faith to make it. Our favorite thing, though, our favorite thing was a weekend of cold rain. We loved that because it brought out all the attitudes that we were trying to ferret out, all the team-killing attitudes in the group. I will tell you, there is nothing like a cold, wet dinner after a long day of canoeing in the rain to bring out the inner sinfulness of a human being. <laughs> and that was our job. Now, once that ugliness was exposed, we always planned the next day a big, a big group challenge because having honestly wrestled with their dysfunction, it was very important for the group to then succeed together. And it was incredibly moving to watch them succeed. A bunch of grumpy people who did not want to be there in the first place all of a sudden are high-fiving each other and hugging each other and excited and acting like a real team. Now, not every group reached that point of e pluribus unum. And... Um, and the ones who didn't get to that point of success rarely hired us again. But, um, but, but quite a few teams truly succeeded through the challenges. And, and over time, we noticed that successful ones all shared three traits. The successful teams all shared three traits. Widespread involvement in the activities. Unity was deemed desirable. They thought it was a good thing to act unified as a team. And those who served the team were developed and they were appreciated. Same three traits we saw all the time. We thought that we had stumbled onto something new. Actually, that lesson is really old. In fact, it's 2,500 years old. The book of Nehemiah exposes those exact same traits. Nehemiah teaches us when he does the greatest team-building exercise you are ever going to read about in your life, we're going to read about it in a moment in Nehemiah chapter 3, that there is widespread involvement in the activities. Unity is deemed desirable, and those who serve the team, those who, who are with the team, are developed and they are appreciated. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah had been applying Scripture for some time now when we get to chapter 3. They'd been, they'd been exposing the people's sinfulness and their syncretism, and as the people responded to that biblical exposure of their ugliness, it was time for a gracious dose of, of building up of accomplishment, and I mean literally building up. Nehemiah led an effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which had lain in ruins for over two generations. It becomes one of the most astonishing accomplishments in all of human history. Let's read about it. Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3, where the work and the workers are detailed. Now, before we start, I recommend that you follow along using the map that's in your bulletin. Uh, open the worship guide you got when you came in. Open that up on the left-hand side. You'll see a map. I apologize for the small scale, but we couldn't make it any bigger and leave room for notes. <clears throat> you should know, by the way, that this map, which I really like, uh, this map could be wrong. The, the western stretches of this construction are very hotly debated. Uh, the western side, by the way, is the top part of your map. Your, your map's facing north is to your right. Um, until they finish digging under the city of Jerusalem, if we ever get to finish digging under that part of the city, we'll, we'll never really know where the western part of the wall went. Some think the rebuilt wall was two and a half miles long, enclosing about 220 acres. Uh, here's a slide, if you look up here, that shows you that idea. The wall is way out here, instead of on the map you have, which is closer down here. This is called the maximalist view. Um, in the minimalist view, to which I personally, uh, I personally am inclined, the minimalist view says the wall would have been about two miles long and enclosed only 90 acres. Either way, 
Whether it's, it's huge or not as big, this is an astonishing achievement that required incredibly coordinated teamwork. <laughs> Think, you can't just send a bunch of disunified people out to build something in separate groups and expect a cogent outcome. And while we don't have the blueprints of their work in Scripture, we do have the blueprint of their astounding unity. Now that we're up to speed, let's read uh, chapter 3 of Nehemiah, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. You can find that on your map. It's on the north side of the wall. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them, you're going to hear that all the time, next to, next to. This is teamwork. They're, they're interleaved. They're working together. They're working next to each other, together. Next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanuya built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakalos, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. More on that in a moment. Joadiah, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodia, repaired the old gate. Um, by the way, in your, in your uh, map, that's up at, the, up at the west side, northwest side, that's called the, the Yashana Gate. It's the same thing. It went by both names. Uh, in, in the words of Sean and Gus, I've heard it both ways. It, it went by both names. Old Gate and Yashana Gate are the same thing. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. <clears throat> Next to them, repairs were done by Metaliah, the Gibeonite, Jodan, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon, and Mitzpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. That's a Persian official. After him, Uziel, the son of Harahaya, uh, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler over half the district of Jerusalem. Um, when you see that it says ruler over half the district, it's a, it's a pretty uh, ancient way to describe somebody who was in a rotating kind of, of government authority, a little bit like a city council. So it doesn't mean they had lines of district that's their half. It means they, they had half power. They had authority as kind of like a councilman. Um, <clears throat> made repairs there. Ruler over half the district of Jerusalem made repairs. After them... Judea, son of Harumaf, Harumaf, does that sound like a grumpy old man or what? I'd love that one. Um, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Heshub, son of Pehath Moab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the Tower of the Ovens. Mmm, Tower of the Ovens. That's on the side of the city from where the wind blows most of the time. Uh, sometimes it's from the east when the hot winds come. Most of the time in Jerusalem, the wind's from that side. So that's where the bakery towers were. Tell me that didn't make that whole town smell good. <laughs> Baked bread. Oh, good German bakery. Beside him, Shalom, the son of Halasha. Ruler over half the district of Jerusalem made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, installed its doors, bolts, and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler over the district of Bet-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. The dung gate is what you would expect. It's where the refuse was taken out of the city. It was dropped in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, where there were fires burning all the time to, to get rid of it. Um, he rebuilt it, installed its doors, bolts, and bars. 
Shalom, the son of Kolhoze, ruler over the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. You can see the stairs on your map. Uh, some of you have been to Jerusalem with me and you've walked on those stairs. They're just south of where you go into Hezekiah's tunnel, so just south of there. Um, <clears throat> after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler over half the district of Bezer, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Next to him, oh, did I skip a part? I did. I did. The pool of Shelah. So sorry. Um, go back. Oh, I so apologize. Go back to verse uh, 15, 16. Okay. Oh, there we go. All right, 18. You were good. Next to him, the Levites made repairs unto Rehum, the son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler over half the district of Kila, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Bunyui, son of Hinadad, ruler over half the district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler over Mitzpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. And you can see the angle on your map. After him, Baruch, son of Zab, Zabai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Beside him, Meramot, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, made repairs to another section from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Maaseah. Is that a great name? It sounds like a farewell greeting. Maaseah. May I see you? I love that. May I see you? son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benue, son of Henadad, made repairs to another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palau, son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the angle and the tower that juts out from the upper palace of the king by the courtyard of the guard. Okay, now, um, I, we, we weren't able to put uh, topo information on your map so you could see, but, but that point where it's talking about that, that tower, this is really steep. In fact, if you've been to Jerusalem, it's steep to this day. The Kidron Valley there is very steep. It was even steeper back then. So this is a pretty, we don't have details on it. It's pretty remarkable construction right here. They're building on the edge of a cliff and managing to, uh, to fortify this and make it a lasting wall. So lasting we still have much of it today. Um, <clears throat> by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padaleah, son of Perash, and the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs opposite his house, and beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, Guard of the east gate made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate. And by the way, in, in your notes, I think it says the muster gate. Um, those are the same thing. Uh, it was where the soldiers would come out to, to muster, to get in line, and there, there they would be inspected by their overseer. So it's, it's the same spot. As far as the upper room of the corner, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs from the upper room of the corner and then back to the sheep gate. Please give yourselves a hand. You survived that entire list of names. That was very impressive. Well done. Good. Remember the first trait of a great team. First trait of a great team. Widespread involvement in the work. That is exactly what we have here. 
There are three astounding aspects of this that should inform our own teamwork and our team building efforts. First thing, a diverse coalition was brought together. By the way, that is the headline on the right side of our notes. A wide coalition was brought together. This is a diverse and far-ranging effort. I want you to look at the cultural and geographic range here. Just look at this. Look at the careers that were involved in what you just read. We had a high priest, the, the highest of high in that society, goldsmiths, perfumers, but then just Levites and priests, simple temple servants, guards and merchants all involved. Look at all these places. When you read across from his house, that's some of the few people that actually lived in Jerusalem. That house was there. All the rest of those people were from other towns around. They were from other places, voluntarily came in to work on this project. And notice, the, you talk about diversity, we had sons and daughters working. Folks, this is a very diverse group of people. Now, I don't think that our modern mantra of diversity for diversity's sake is necessarily helpful. Sometimes it seems that we are dedicated to diversity as an end in itself, which is frankly an absurd idea. However, however, there is a reason that McKinsey Research last year revealed this. The most diverse companies with a clear mission outperformed their peers. Companies made up of at least 30% racial minorities who had a clear mission understood by all were 12% more productive than the norm of their industry. Their stock over a five-year period ran 15% higher. You see, that combination is the key, and we learn it from Nehemiah. There is no sense that his mission was diversity itself. His mission was to build the wall. And yet, with that clear mission, he used everybody, everybody who would work. And that was a widely divergent group indeed. One of the most effective examples of this in modern times occurred during the late 20th century Gulf War. The U.S. Secretary of State was a guy named James Baker, and he built an incredibly diverse military coalition. Under his leadership, even Arab countries sent soldiers against Iraq. Never had happened before. The Soviets promised to, to not interfere. Even countries that were, that were banned by their constitutions from, from sending troops, Japan, Egypt, Germany, they, sent, they spent huge sums of money on that war. And because of the clear mission and because of the diversity, that entire thing was over in 39 days, an astonishing achievement. Conquered all of Iraq and freed it in 39 days. That is very similar, I mean all of Kuwait in 39 days. That is very similar to the 52 days it took Nehemiah's diverse coalition to rebuild the city wall. Only 52 days. Part of the reason each effort went so quickly was that in each case they all worked, or at least almost all worked. Verse 5 is one of the most scathing indictments in Nehemiah. Let me tell you who these people are. These are Jews who live south of Bethlehem in this town, Tekoa. Uh, Tekoa is a small town, but it's a very proud city because it is the hometown of probably the hardest working person in the entire Old Testament, a prophet named Amos. I don't know if you know this about Amos, but he is, he is one of the very, very rare figures in ministry in the Old Testament who does not do it as a career. He is not, it is not his vocation, to, his occupation to be in ministry. He's actually an agricultural worker, and he works very hard. We know that because of different parts of his speeches. He is involved in all that, and yet he also takes time to preach as God is giving him time to preach. Again, Tekoa is a small town, especially now in this post-exile time when they came back, but they're a very proud town. I think that if Tekoa had had water towers like we do instead of cisterns, I feel confident their water tower would have said, hometown of Amos, the real working prophet. Okay, that's, 
That's what these people are like. That's what Tekoa was known for. Here they are, these Israelis, return to their ancestral lands back in Tekoa, reestablish on those lands as part of the great land restoration act that Nehemiah did that gave them back their property. They're so thankful to have, to have the law give them back their property that was taken by the foreign government that they come up voluntarily to work in Jerusalem. That is, all of them except their nobles. Folks, did you notice these Tekoites even built two sections of wall? You see, they built one in the beginning of our text, and then later it said they built another section of wall. But their nobles won't lift a finger to help. Listen to it from the, the English Standard Version. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The Hebrew is incredibly descriptive. Uh, nobles is a plural of adir. It's a, it's a grandiose word. Adir is a, a flowery word for something that is majestic, something that is powerful. We, it, elsewhere in the scripture, we see adir used of, of mighty, mighty warriors. We see adir used of very powerful kings. Adir is used of the Messiah. Nehemiah is being really sarcastic in using this word of the lazy or fearful nobles of Tekoa. And by the way, it may have been fear that held them back. Their territory, Tekoa, uh, abutted the territory of a renowned anti-Semite, a guy named Geshem the Arab who hated Jews. So they may have been scared or they may have been lazy. But regardless, they refused to help the Lord. And in doing so, they are acting like the opposite of Adir. By contrast, everybody else worked like the prophet Amos, right? They, they kept their careers going. They kept their families going. They apparently kept the Sabbath. And yet every other bit of their energy was focused on one mission. And that mission was building the wall. They all worked. And hard work cannot be overrated. Walter Isaacson wrote a really clever biography of Leonardo da Vinci. His ultimate conclusion was this, and I quote, Yes, Leonardo was a genius, but an imitable one. His number one trait was that he worked hard. These people in Jerusalem did the same. So can we. In fact, doing so can lead to amazing achievements. However, that brings up a serious concern that I have for modern people in industrialized states. Most people I know consider themselves adir. We, we assume that we are brave and hardworking nobles, right? We do. That's what we assume about ourselves. But when push comes to shove, let me be quite honest, we don't like to get our hands dirty. We even... We even, as a society, look down our noses at Tekoite commoners who actually work hard for a living. I fear we have become so incapable of effort that even sarcasm like Nehemiah's is lost. on. We don't even get the sarcasm. So, to make sure that we understand this, that it pierces us, I've updated Nehemiah's a dear sarcastic comment by choosing this video. I think this may bring it home to you. That's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody! Hello? There are two people stuck on an escalator and we need help. Now. Would somebody please do something? Help! 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 <laughs> I don't believe this. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I'm gonna cry. <laughs> well, there's not enough left to do. Is it?
Do you want to be truly a dear, truly noble, instead of a caricature like that or a caricature like the Tekoite nobles? Do you want to be, you want to be noble? Then quit calling for everybody else to work and move your own feet. It's the first key to dynamic team building, widespread involvement in the work. And it calls for diverse participation in dedicated effort. And that can lead to achievements beyond reasonable capacities, which is the next point in our notes. At the Vancouver Winter Olympics, Slovenian uh, cross-country skier Petra Majdik fell during warm-ups. Folks, it was a bad fall. She, she went down a 10-foot cliff of ice and landed on rocks. Uh, and after she landed, ev- every breath hurt. She had to be carried into the medical tent. In the medical tent, they did an MRI, but it was misread. And the doctor told her, yeah, you're bruised, but you're good to go. So believing that diagnosis, Petra skied hard all day. Get this. She gritted her teeth, and she skied through the qualifying race, made it into the quarterfinals. Skied in the quarterfinals, made it into the semifinals. Skied in the semifinals, and made it into the Olympic final. By the way, in that semifinal, she felt a a penetrating pain in her side. But since she knew she was okay, she just kept going. She made the final. In the medal race, she won the bronze medal and then immediately collapsed and had to be taken to the hospital. When they got to the hospital, they found out that she actually had many broken ribs. And that pain she felt in the semifinal was one of the ribs puncturing her lung, which collapsed. That's right. She won a bronze medal on one lung. I can't cross-country ski 500 yards on two lungs. (laughs) Alex Hutchison used that story in his new book, uh, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. I have not read the book, only an excerpt, but I was very intrigued by his thesis. Here's his thesis, and I quote, The subjective perception of effort is a sort of master controller, which means, in practical terms, that if you change your perception of a task's difficulty, you can change your actual results, end quote. There are limits on this. There are limits on this, but we'll look at those another day. For now, I want you to just catch the big idea that changed perception can change results. What the people did in Jerusalem was, quite frankly, unreasonable. These were people living under severe political oppression, working far outside of their own skill set, taking on a task no one had achieved in over 100 years, although many people had tried. But they believed it could be done. They trusted a God who was bigger than their task. And that freed them to accomplish the extraordinary. They weren't ignorant like poor Petra Majdik. They were just faithful. Listen, listen to the reflection at the end of all this. Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, verse 15. The wall was completed in 52 days. On the 25th day of the month of Elul, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized this task had been accomplished by our whom, everybody? By our God. How about us? What seemingly impossible task looms ahead of you? Think of one. Think of one impossible, not something goofy like marrying a billionaire, okay? Think think of something you know from Scripture that you are called to do. Scripture calls you to do something, but it seems unreasonably hard. Maybe it's taking care of a bunch of people that are really young. Maybe maybe it's taking care of of somebody that's really old or someone who's disabled. It, It... you know it's good, you know you're supposed to do it, but it just seems, it just seems impossible. Maybe it's loving that idiot neighbor of yours. Maybe it's working hard all day long for people who are quite frankly unappreciative. Whatever it is, listen to the people of Jerusalem. Would you listen? Change your perception. Find people who will work alongside you and hold you accountable. Trust God and discover that you too can achieve beyond all reasonable capabilities. All God's people said, 
Amen. Now remember, our three traits for successful team building. Number two was that unity was deemed desirable. Flip over to chapter 11 real quickly. There's a fabulous example of this in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah 11, 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people praised all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. This is huge. The, the leaders show their investment here. Why do I say that? Verse 1 says the leaders of the people voluntarily stayed in this yucky, ruined city. That investment built unity. This is a decayed inner city. And yet the Jewish leaders choose to settle in that wild and woolly world. This is the, this is the hardest kind of pioneering, by the way. It, is, it requires putting your money and your family where your mouth is. But if you are not vested, listen, if you're not vested personally, your leadership will be hollow. I, for example, I've experienced uh, this, sadly, a number of times. Um, I've experienced this scenario. There's some person that comes to me uh, for advice or help or something, a wonderful person who serves in ministry. And this person and I will get to talking about what they're dealing with in their life, and, and eventually we'll get around to their own involvement, their own investment as, as a servant leader in that work. And I have been told a number of times, well, actually, uh, Wayne, I don't give money to whatever ministry they serve in because they don't pay me enough to be able to give. And, and besides, they get all my time, okay? Every time, and I mean every time that has happened, that person ends up fired within a year. And no, it's not because their bosses know how much they give. I, I've gone back and checked. There's no sense that their overseers had any idea. But that employee's lack of investment bled through everything they did. It, their personal half-heartedness erodes unity instead of building it. Investment is inextricably connected with effectiveness. Investment is inextricably connected with effectiveness. That's why I give sacrificially to this church, and I expect that anyone who wants to be effective in this work is going to do the same. After all, are we, just ask yourself this, are we going to be outdone by a bunch of people in Jerusalem who didn't even have the Holy Spirit yet? Invest yourself in God's work, and it will, bu it will build up the whole in ways that we cannot even fully measure. Second thing going on in chapter 11, 1 and 2 is that sacrifice was an outgrowth of hope. Um, it, it wasn't merely the leaders who chose to resettle in the now safer but still unsavory city. They, they drew lots for other people to come in and fill up the empty places. One in ten families were chosen by lot to leave their homes out in the more productive areas and to move in and try and scratch out a living in Jerusalem. And then verse 2 praises the volunteers. Now I know I know what you're thinking in that um, Hans and Franz voice that you like to use. You're saying, why would it read volunteers when they were conscripted? That's not voluntary. <laughs> Thank you for asking. It's a great question. It seems most likely to me that a second group is in view in verse 2. The, the first bunch were chosen by Lot. And their response, along with the leader's investment, motivated a whole second group to volunteer and come join them in the city. The, the, the curious question is, why would anyone volunteer to live in such a hard place? I've thought about this over the last few months. And as I'm thinking about it, I, I find myself more and more curious why current societies are so hesitant to do hard things. Current societies are, are not like this. Our forefathers were a number of times, but we're not. And I think, this, I think the answer has to do with perception of hope. 
perception of hope. I think this is the logic driving current generations. If I don't think that things can get better, if I think things are doomed to keep getting worse, then I'm not going to sacrifice like Nehemiah's Jews did. Even if I see sacrifice as necessary, I only want other people to do it. By the way, this phenomenon is not new. It's as old as Pericles, Athens, and modern as today's Texas. Let me, let me give you a quick survey. Quick survey. How many here are convinced the world is getting worse? Wait, let me, let me be more specific. Raise your hand if, during your lifetime, you have seen the world become a more dangerous place. During your lifetime, you've seen the world become a more dangerous place. Okay, hands down. That's a lot of hands. Uh, and by the way, in that, all of you who raised your hands agree with the, the Republicans and Democrats in America today. It's about the only thing they agree on, although they are bitterly divided on the reasons. And that can be, I think, why we see so little engagement in civic life today. Think about it. If I don't think things can get better, if we're just hopelessly doomed, I'm not going to engage in personal sacrifice. I'm going to run away, right? Now, while that's understandable, it is misguided, especially for Christians who know that God is at work in all times and all places. Amen? True, Scripture promises darkness, I know that, but it also teaches that investing yourself in God's good work will build up the whole in ways that we cannot even fully measure. And let me tell you something. All of us who raised our hands are wrong. I'm not trying to pick on you, it's just the fact. Even the world recognizes that the data is not so gloomy. During the past 200 years... Even during the past 30 years, as Protestant values have begun to sweep across Western societies and then unto the world. And don't kid yourself, the world is not post-Christian. It might be in little pockets where you live, but if you travel this world, you'll find that the Protestant message is spreading like wildfire across the world. As those values have spread around the world, every single measure of life has improved. Dr. Steven Pinker uh, of Harvard has spoken very forcefully about this. Listen, listen to his data. Here's what he says. Uh, consider the U.S. just three decades ago. Our annual homicide rate was 8.5 per 100,000. 11% of us fell below the poverty line as measured by consumption. And by the way, it's the only rational way to measure poverty is by consumption. And we spewed 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide and 34.5 uh, million tons of particulate matter into the atmosphere. Fast forward to the most recent numbers available today. The homicide rate now is 5.3, a blip up from 4.4 in 2014. 3% of us fall below the consumption poverty line, and we emit only 4 million tons of sulfur dioxide and 20.6 million tons of particulates, despite generating more wealth and driving many more miles. Here's another one. Just consider literacy. And by the way, literacy is by far the number one factor if you want to see people get out of poverty. Nothing's more important than literacy. The proportion of people who can read and write has nearly swapped places with the proportion who could not 200 years ago. Do you know that? 200 years ago, around the world, about 16% of people could read and write. Today, it's about 84% of people around the world can read and write. Dr. Pinker goes on. We'll give you a couple more. Globally, the 30-year scorecard also favors the present. 1988, 23 wars raised, killing people at a rate of 3.4 per 100,000 people. Today, it's 12 wars, killing 1.2 per 100,000. In 1988, the world had just 45 democracies embracing 2 billion people. Today, it has 103 embracing 4.1 billion, two-thirds of the earth. 37% of the population lived in extreme poverty that year, barely able to feed themselves, compared with 9.6% today. True, 2016 was a bad year for terrorism in Western Europe with 238 deaths, but 1988, when I lived in Germany, it was even worse with 440 deaths. Just one more paragraph. I want to drive this point home. Pinker says, life has been getting safer in every other way. Over the past century, Americans have become, and by the way, these numbers are adjusted for population. 
Okay, so they're real numbers. Americans have become 96% less likely to be killed in an auto accident, 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 92% less likely to die by fire, 90% less likely to drown, 92% less likely to be asphyxiated, 95% less likely to be killed on the job. Close quote. Hopelessness in our culture is frankly absurd. People need to get their chins up. And Christians should be leading the charge to invest and sacrifice for society. Not only are we probably the only ones who are apolitical enough to see the good and the bad of all the news, we know that God is always at work through us. It's Christians who should be building strong, diverse teams that impact the world because unity is desirable. We have hope because Jesus left us here for a purpose, and he is with us now, and he is coming to take us back. All God's people said... Amen. Okay, we started by noting three factors that build dynamic teams. Widespread involvement, unity deemed desirable, and those who serve the team are developed and they are appreciated, which is exactly the case in Nehemiah. I want you to go back, look in your mind at what we studied in chapter 3. What was missing from Nehemiah's account besides pronounceable names? What was missing? Micromanagement. He doesn't do it all. Do you notice that? He, he can't. He, he sets a clear goal, and then he looses the people to get it all done. Nehemiah developed people by giving them authority and responsibility. People learn by doing, but sometimes leaders aren't like Nehemiah, and we won't get out of the way. Harvard Business Review addressed this uh, May 2010. Read this article then, and I've mulled over it ever since. Liz Wiseman, Greg McCown, uh, they, show, they, they do a study about strong leaders. Fascinating article, and, and strong leadership is good. But they show how strong leaders can actually harm the development of their people. And, and, and this is often inadvertent, but it is no less serious. They contrasted five different types of strong leadership. In each case, one expression of that leadership type diminishes development of the team while the other multiplies human capacity. So let me walk you through these. They're really fascinating. The, the first one that diminishes is the micromanager. The micromanager drives results through his or her personal involvement. This happens a lot to people who start businesses and then have a very hard time uh, as it scales stepping back. Uh, contrast that with the investor who multiplies capacity. The investor gives other people ownership of results and invests in their success. These are similar, folks. Each person is really involved. The investor's not, not absent. They're in there working, but it's not micromanaging. It's investing. There is a difference. The tyrant creates a tense environment that suppresses people's thinking and capability. Some of you have worked for tyrants, Right? Contrast that with the liberator. The liberator contrasts an intense environment that requires people's best thinking and their best work. Again, very similar. Tense and intense are very similar. But, but one suppresses people and the other makes you, like you had coaches like this. They made you want to give your best, right? The, um, the diminisher on this one is the know-it-all. The know-it-all gives directives that demonstrate how much he or she knows, Right? The challenger defines an opportunity that causes people to stretch their thinking and or their behavior. Challenger still knows more than you do. That's why they set up this thing where you could fall on your face and learn. But, but they, don't, they don't use it as an opportunity to show off. The decision maker diminishes development. This person makes centralized, abrupt decisions that can confuse the whole organization. Uh, one of our executive pastors, our senior executive pastor, Andy, and I were talking about this just the other day, a church that we have been working with and the the, the pastor just did this, and it just upset the whole organization. The opposite of that is the similar but different debate maker. And by the way, both of our executive pastors are brilliant at this. It's one of their great traits. They drive sound decisions by cultivating rigorous debate among the team members. That builds up the team. 
Last one, the empire builder hoards resources and underutilizes talent. I've seen this a lot in software companies, especially a lot of you work for software companies. You'll see the, the empire building hoarder happen a lot in those businesses. The talent magnet, by contrast, attracts people and uses them to their highest potential. All right? You got all those? Now, I have to confess to you that horribly I have in one way or another been guilty of every one of those development killers. I have. You, you probably have as well. Nehemiah, by contrast, exhibits every single one of the multiplier traits. By God's grace, I pray we become more like Nehemiah, people who develop everybody who is ready and willing to serve. I want you to look one more time at the negative traits. Look up here, and let me ask you a question. At which of those are you weakest? I know, I know none of those apply to you wonderful people. I, I know that. But if one did, which one would be most likely to be true of you? Think about it. Own it, and then you can let the Holy Spirit work on you, and you can develop out of it. I was at a conference last week where my daughter's favorite author was speaking, uh, Patrick Lencioni. Remember, I write books, but uh, this is my daughter's favorite author. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I happen to agree with her, by the way. He is great. Uh, Lencioni was talking about this subject at the conference, and he said we must be honest in appraising our own weakness because then we can ask for support and we can grow toward the positive. By the way, that also allows us to, to hold others accountable in, in their weaknesses. And he said, he said this in essence, and I take this from his book and not what he said at the conference, but he said, look, only three things can happen when you are continually honest about development. You know what the weaknesses are, you own them, you're honest about them, you come back to them, you keep growing in them in a, in a positive environment, only three things can happen. Number one, the person, and it can be you or it can be somebody else you're working with, changes. God does change people. He grows us up, they change. Is that good? Yes or no? Yeah, that's good. Second thing that can happen, the person decides that he or she doesn't like being held accountable, doesn't like development, and they leave. Is that good? Oh, yes, that's very good. I promise you that's good. Third thing is the person refuses to change or leave, which gives the team clear grounds to remove them. Is that good? Say yes. Good heavens. Yes. It's not fun, but it's good. Development is good. It is loving. We need to develop ourselves and our teammates, and we also need to appreciate those who serve on the team. I want you to turn one last section. We're, we're late, but I want to go real quickly. One last thing. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12 shows this very nicely, appreciation, uh, verses 44 through uh, 47. On that same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms, this is up on the Temple Mount, that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tenths. The legally required portions for the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification along with the singers and gatekeepers and David, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were leaders of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the daily portions for the Levites and the Levites set aside daily portions for the descendants of Aaron, the priests. The Old Testament law is very clear. Levites and priests are to be well provided for so that they can lead God's people in lives of worship. By the way, the law says the Levites are to receive a, a, a tithe offering, and then they're to take 10% of that and give it to the priests. Do you know a telltale sign of spiritual well-being in Israel? It's total truth here. Telltale sign of spiritual well-being in Israel was a fat priest. That was a sign of a healthy Israel because priests were required to eat certain ones of the sacrifices and they made their whole living off of people's offerings. So when you had a fat priest, Moses says, that means you've got people who are, who are worshiping before the Lord. The people are giving, right? 
And this principle of appreciating the servant leaders, that comes into the New Testament church as well. It comes to us. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. You take the underlined text. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to make an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is part of what makes other people want to be servant leaders as well, not to become wealthy, but because they see that serving is valued. When your kids see you write thank you notes, what are they learning? That people who bless us are appreciated, right? On the other hand, what do we teach when we are demanding, rude, entitled? I'll tell you what we do. We leave all the people around us with one very indelible idea that somebody would be a fool to serve in any capacity. What fool would want to do that? And this is not merely a contained issue for your family, your business, your church. If we don't lead the way, listen, if we don't lead the way in developing and appreciating those who serve, we're going to miss an important moment in this society. Dr. Michael Grant made a very powerful case that one of the key reasons Rome collapsed in the West, listen to this, one of the key reasons Rome collapsed in the West was that people could not be convinced to take the roles of public service. You see, those who served the teams were sucked dry without any appreciation, and eventually nobody wanted those jobs, which led to a complete infrastructure collapse. In the same way, we in the West today are very soon going to face a severe shortage of doctors, business creators, honest money managers, dedicated civil servants, teachers, and pastors. This is serious, and this must change. So let's pray about it. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will be appreciative, that we will be grateful, and that that will change our society. Thank you that you have called us to be your ambassadors to this world, that we are to have full hope because of who you are, not because of the society, but because of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.